Welcome to the podcast, episode five. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. It's good to have you here. Thanks for listening. What I wanted to do this uh, uh, in the first segment of this session is talk about a concept that is very important, uh, very crucial to understanding what's going on in the cultural battles that we see unfolding around us all the, all the time. Uh, this is um, the concept of what Rushduni called an inescapable concept. What is an inescapable concept? Well, we would say that it is not whether, but which. The phrase that sums up the inescapable concept is that phrase, not whether, but which. It's not whether we will impose a morality, but rather which morality we will impose. It's not whether we will live in the theocracy, it's which theocracy we will live in. It's not whether we will obey a divine law, but rather which divine law we will obey. What many people, the the people who resist this notion of an inescapable concept are people who have bought into what is called the myth of neutrality. They believe that it's possible to go somewhere, stand somewhere, where there is no ultimate law, where there is no ultimate standard, where there is no ultimate anything. Let me illustrate how this thing works. So if you are in a discussion with a non-believing friend, for, for example, and you're pro-life and he is pro-abortion, and it comes up that you want to outlaw abortion, you want to make abortion against the law, he might object and probably will object to you saying something like, but you want to, uh, your pro-life convictions um, mean that you want to impose your morality on other people, other people who don't share your morality. You're a Christian, you're a conservative Christian, and you want to impose your conservative Christian morality on the doctor, let's say, or on the mother, or on the state legislature. So you've got... um, a state legislature that wants abortion to be legal, or you have a mother who wants to procure an abortion, or you have a doctor who wants to provide an abortion, they are all atheists. They don't share your convictions. They don't share your worldview. And so here you, here you are coming along, trying to impose your morality on them. Now, this is where you need to um, insert, appeal to, retreat to and then counterattack with an inescapable concept. Take that phrase, not whether but which, and see how it works. It's not whether we impose, in the, in the abortion debate, it's not whether we impose our morality on someone, it's which morality we impose on someone. In both cases, a morality is applied to people who don't share it. A pro-lifer who is given an opportunity to create laws that are in keeping with common decency, protecting life, um, he, it really is true that the pro-lifer wants to impose a moral standard on doctors who don't share it. We want to impose a moral standard on mothers who don't share it. We want to impose a moral standard on politicians who don't share it. That's all perfectly true. But what's the alternative? If we continue with uh, our pro-abortion culture, what's happening there? Well, a morality is still being imposed, is it not? In this case, 
the morality the morality of the doctor and the mother is being imposed on the unborn child it's not whether you impose a morality it's which morality you impose someone is being imposed on uh, you can't have a society a society can't exist without law and law is nothing uh, other than an imposition of a mor of a moral system when we say you shall not steal someone else's bicycle well says who that's either the imposition of the mosaic law thou shalt not steal or it's an appeal to utilitarianism, which is an ultimate worldview system. What would happen if we allowed stealing bicycles? Everybody's bicycle is vulnerable. People would stop manufacturing and buying bicycles, etc. That's a utilitarian argument, but it's an ultimate standard. There's no appeal past that. That That is a moral system. Utilitarianism is a moral system. Islam is a moral system. The Christian faith is a moral system. And when we are choosing what we're, what we're going to do, when we are choosing how we are going to live, we are choosing between moral systems. There is no neutral balcony where we can go stand and look down on the universe and have no moral system available to us that we can use when we're watching all these events unfold. So it's not whether but which. It's not whether we impose a morality, it's which morality we impose. Uh, here's another thing. Uh, you, you Christians, you conservative Christians, just want to bring in a theocracy. Well, ultimately, yes, we do. Yes, we do want to impose morality. Yes, we do want to impose a theocracy. But the, but the uh, novelty, the, the, the thing that distinguishes our position is not that we want to bring in a theocracy. It's the identity of the theos. It's the identity of the God. Every society has a God of the system. Every society has an ultimate court, has an ultimate Supreme Court past which there's no appeal. And when you've gotten to the place in that society where there's no appeal past it, um, you have found and identified the God of the system. So in secular democracies, the God of the system is demos, the people. And when you get to the, the will of the people, walks populi, walks day, the voice of the people is the voice of God. When you've gotten to that point, you've identified the voice of the, uh, of the system, the ultimate voice in the system, which means you've identified the God of the system. Now, if you found the God of the system, then that's a theocracy. So secular democracies are a theocracy, and the theos is demos, the people. A Christian republic, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ would be the God of the system. In Islamic societies, Allah is the God of the system. Every society has an ultimate authority. If there is no ultimate authority, it's not a society at all. It's just different people from different nations with different citizenships passing by each other on the on the street. That's not a that's not a society. A society, in order to be an integrated unit at all, has to have certain uh, shared principles. So when you appeal to those principles, you're talking not whether but which. It's not whether we have uh, not whether we impose a law, but which law we impose. It's not whether we will serve a god, but rather which god we will serve. The inescapable concept is really important for us to grasp. If we don't grasp it, if we continue to drift along as many Christians in, in uh, the American political system have done and in our culture wars have done, is that, that we believe 
that we are appealing to a religious system, a faith system, a, uh, a divine law, and they are appealing to something disembodied like reason or something self-evident. So we're be- we feel like we're behind the eight ball. We have to justify the ultimate standard that we appeal to. And somehow, mysteriously, they don't have to justify the ultimate standard that they are appealing to. But they do. Uh, everyone, if, if, if I want to live in a society, that means someone is going to have, their, their, well, put it this way, there is no society where you have absolute unanimity about absolutely everything, which means that in every society, someone is going to be imposed on. Someone is going to have a system or a ruling or a law applied to them that they don't like, that they reject. And every society is good with that. Some make a determination based on what the Bible says. Some make the determination based on what the Quran says. Some make the determination based on what tradition says. Some make the determination on the basis of majority vote. But in every case, someone is imposing on someone. It's not whether, but which. Never whether, but which. So in this segment of our uh, podcast, we uh, have come to the point where I I want to review a book. Uh, I I want to promote a book, plug a book, encourage you to get and read, uh, read a book. And, um, and this episode where uh, the the book I've selected is Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. Planet Narnia is actually, I I would have to say, one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, It's in, it's certainly in my top 10. We've had, uh, uh, Michael Ward, the author, out here to Moscow several times to speak for us. He's as engaging in person as he is in print. Planet Narnia is his full-length treatment of this, of his theme, his uh, thesis, which I'm going to uh, state for you in a minute. But there's an, uh, another book of, um, called The Narnian Code, which is basically a popular-level, uh, entry-level treatment of the same thesis. So you could get a shorter paperback version of um, this thesis in the Narnian Code, or you could read it in detail in Planet Narnia. So what's the book about? Uh, Michael Ward has basically, I think, uncovered one of the central secrets to the success of the Narnia stories. The Narnia stories, are there are seven of them, and they are, some people consider them as uh, Tolkien, Lewis's friend, thought that they were something of a hodgepodge, that there are all sorts of things, uh, uh, mythological creatures and, and uh, uh, odd fixtures. What, what is Father Christmas doing in here? And why do, you, why do you have these creatures from Greek mythology? And you know, what's going on? And so that's one question is why, why did Lewis throw all these things together in a jumble? But then the second question is given that, given the undeniable hodgepodgeness of some aspects of the Narnia stories is why do they have, why do they work? Why are the Narnia stories so successful, still selling, um, still bestsellers decades after Lewis's death? And Michael Ward uncovered what I believe is a secret thread, an invisible thread that ties uh, the pearls together that, that that enables you to thread the pearls so that it's an actual pearl necklace and not a jumble of 
pearls, as some people have thought. Um, and here's the, here's the thread. What Ward discovered is that each one of the seven books has a planetary theme uh, that governs that book. So um, as, as you read Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, and then he's got a, an essay-length treatment of the same thesis in um, Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature, a, a collection of essays. So there's a short essay in that book and a book-length treatment of The Discarded Image. Lewis loved the, the medieval cosmology. And that cosmology, of course, was geocentric, and there were planetary spheres that revolved around the Earth. And you have to think the Earth is at the center, and then you have, imagine like a fishbowl, a crystal or a glass sphere that had a planet embedded in the side of it, and the whole sphere spun. The moon would be in the first sphere, and then Venus would be in the next, uh, the next sphere, and so on on out. So you'd have the moon and Venus and, and the sun and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. Basically, you, you have all these planets revolving around the Earth. Now, what Ward discovered is that each book of the Narniad is devoted to one of those planets. Oh, I left out, I left out uh, Mercury. So you have the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, and so on. So it's very easy to identify each one of the books with one of the planets. So if you say, well, what book is associated with the, with the moon? Well, obviously it's the silver chair. White, paleness, subterranean light, um, night events, uh, wetness, which was associated with the, the moon, is a very, very uh, prominent theme in the silver chair. So the silver chair, and, and then of course, Prince Rillian is a lunatic who's moonstruck, basically. The whole book revolves around it. Another example would be um, Prince Caspian is clearly associated with Mars, with the god of war. And also, Mars is the god of woods, so forests. And so woods and forests and battles are a central theme in Prince Caspian. Or Mercury would be the, the planet that the horse and his boy is dedicated to. Mercury is a messenger god, and Shasta is carrying a message. Um, Mercury is also the god of thieves, and you have um, Shasta and, and Bree having to pilfer things on their way out of Calamon, and so on. So um, uh, what Ward does is he treats these themes, and he shows book by book in exhaustive detail how each book of the Narniad is dedicated to a particular planet, and he shows that this was done without any possibility of being done by accident. Um, the sun is the voids of the Don Treader, obviously, and so on. So I, I commend this book to you. It's a wonderful book. It's a great book. And if you want uh, just a teaser, then get the Narnia Code and read that first. If you read that first, you'll probably go on and get Planet Narnia and read that too. All right, kids, it's time for our hamartiology lesson. You remember that we are going through um, the New Testament, looking at all the different Greek words that refer to sins of some sort. Well, the verb adikeo means to do wrong. And in the passive voice, it indicates that the subject has been wronged. So you can either do wrong or in the passive voice, you were the, uh, 
subject of someone doing wrong. The basic sense here has to do with justice. As we see the verb used in the New Testament, it it generally refers to the practice of screwing people or, on the flip side, getting screwed. But as with many sins, an accusation of such wrongdoing might not line up with the facts. The employer did not do wrong by hiring men at different times of the day for the same amount. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 13. Uh, In that parable, he's accused of doing wrong, with this word being used, but he, he didn't actually do wrong, but he's accused of it. Paul denied any wrongdoing before Festus in Acts 25, Uh, 10, but he confessed that if he had done wrong, he would not refuse to be punished for it, even to the point of death, Acts 25.11. Incidentally, Acts 25.11 is one of the places we could go to uh, defend capital punishment in the New Testament. Paul says, if I've done anything uh, deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. Paul also tells the Corinthians that he had wronged no man, 2 Corinthians 7.2. He said, I've not done this thing to anybody. I've not wronged any man. The Galatians had not wronged or injured Paul, Galatians 4.12. So we can see that one of the wrongs we commit is that of accusing the innocent of having done wrong. False accusation is a fundamental injustice. So it's a sin to do wrong, and one of the wrongs we might do is accuse someone else of having done wrong when they did not or when we don't have evidence that they did so uh, this this is a we live in an era that thrives on false accusation Uh, there's an awful lot of it about and for many people someone just makes a wild charge and people say well if there's smoke there's uh, there's fire well oftentimes where there's smoke there's a smudge pot where there's smoke there's somebody uh, with a smoke machine Uh, back to the word adikeo Uh, Moses chided the two Israelites who were fighting for wronging each other, Moses said, in Acts 7.26. Why do you wrong one another? And one of them was particularly at fault uh, in verse 27. It is noteworthy that when accountability in the person of Moses arrived, the one who was particularly the offender did not want that accountability. Paul rebuked the Corinthians for wronging each other, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 8. So it's clear that members of Christian churches are not above this sort of thing. Christian members of Christian churches are capable of wronging each other. We shouldn't, but we do. And that's why Paul rebuked it among the Corinthians. Colossian servants were reminded not to do wrong, for God sees all of it. And in his judgment is no respecter of persons, Colossians 3.25. If Onesimus had wronged Philemon, which seemed likely from the way Paul's talking about it, Paul promised to put that right with Philemon, uh, which, we, which you can see in verse 18 of Philemon. Paul had intervened at Corinth once because a member of the congregation had done wrong while another had suffered the wrong, 2 Corinthians 7.12. And although such things should be addressed within the church, Christians should still prefer to suffer wrong than to go to court before unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 6.7. So the one who insists on being unjust or wrong, let him stay that way, Revelation twenty-two eleven. But those who live by the screw will die by the screw. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. 
This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.